We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State health officials on all islands are urging residents to get their vaccines. While appointments are still recommended on Oahu this weekend, the vaccine clinic at Pier 2 began allowing walk-ins. This morning, we reached out to the state health department on the Big Island where three large vaccine clinics are being scheduled. Uh, Jason De La Cruz is a planner with the Office of Public Health Preparedness in Hilo. Certainly from a case count perspective, we had a little bit of a spike last month and kind of steeped over from the the month before. So uh, our case counts are kind of plateauing at this point. I would still say they're pretty regular. It's elevated rather than what we were hitting our peak or our trough down in December. And so, you know, some of that is travel related. Some of it is local transmission. Uh, we may be seeing some shifting in, in where it's going on geographically. And so we're kind of looking at that as well. Cases are still being identified, but the numbers are manageable with our contact tracing at, at the moment, right? We're able to kind of uh, you know, act on that really quickly, trace it back as much as we can and take appropriate action. The Department of Health is urging people to get vaccinated. And I know there are a number of different clinics uh, on each of the islands you know, where we've got mass vaccinations. Do you have any this week there on the Big Island? Yeah, actually, we are having a, uh, we have uh, two clinics tomorrow for Tuesday. We have uh, Johnson & Johnson Clinic being available in Hilo at the Principal Hilo Plaza. And then we're running our normal West Hawaii Clinic on Tuesdays at the Aquatic Center. That's offering Moderna. Later on in the week, normally on Thursdays, we do our uh, Moderna Clinic in Hilo at the Afukchinin Civic Auditorium. Uh, and that's, I believe, the only drive through site in the state. Oh, wow. How's that going? You know, uh, <laughs> some might have thought we were pretty crazy to do it, especially in Hilo with the amount of rain that we get. <laughs> uh, we've been very fortunate with the weather. But the reason why that was kind of planned from the beginning was that we had a lot of infrastructure from Hawaii County set up and ready to go from a logistical point of view to pull off a drive through because that site has been used for testing for months. And so transitioning that site and the layout and the conception of it into a vaccination clinic was one of the early goals that we wanted to capitalize on. So we've been able to do that successfully. And due to Mary Monarch, you know, May 13th will be our last clinic at that site for a few weeks while the organizers have access to that facility for the Mary Monarch. But that's given, you know, people just a lot of different options. Some people really like the drive-through. We've, as I said, we've been pretty much spared a lot of the time by the weather. There's been a few rainy days, but, you know, that layout allows people who, you know, are comfortable in their cars, people who can't walk very well. You know, it gives people, you know, a whole bunch of options to go to a traditional kind of walk-in clinic at, say, uh, our Hilo Medical Center uh, facility or our, we were at, at a time doing a clinic at the tennis stadium in Hilo, too. What has the turnout been like? You know, uh, we were hearing, oh, it was a couple of weeks ago that the the response with the vaccines, it, it was softening, the demand was softening. Uh, and then there was the hiccup with the Johnson & Johnson pause. I think nationally, we are seeing kind of a hitting of the wall in terms of now for the first time, vaccine supply is kind of outpacing immediate demand. And so we have a lot of folks early on that were really, really, really wanting it. We didn't have enough supply. It was a very uh, coveted quantity. But at this point, a lot of places on, on our island are, are not filling up all of those slots. And we're seeing this nationally as well uh, in terms of those early adopters to getting the vaccine. And so um, I think it's on public health now to kind of shift gears. We have to be more selective and do more, a lot more outreach. 
get those people kind of on the fence, you know, on board and get them to come in and schedule the clinics. So, you know, at the, you know, though these large community clinics were very useful in terms of dealing with these large amounts of people wanting at this time, we may be seeing a shift to more smaller community-based clinics that, uh, you know, have a level of pre-registration and then outreach to draw people in and kind of reducing those barriers. And so I think overall demand is starting to diminish. And now we're kind of changing people's uh, uh, minds and, and trying to urge them that now is the time to get your vaccine. How are we sitting for tomorrow's clinics? I believe out in Kona, we are still running under capacity, uh, maybe only about, I think, less than about 50% capacity is filled. And then for our Johnson & Johnson clinic, you know, people hopping back into that clinic is pretty muted at this point, actually. I believe we have less than 100 appointments currently that could be changing. The urge to get Johnson & Johnson by a portion of the community when it first came out was really, really strong because people have been waiting for this. But since, uh, you know, the whole fiasco with Johnson & Johnson, it has been a little bit harder to communicate that and to advertise that out. And so that clinic was only open for scheduling for only about a week or so. So we knew from previous administrations of Johnson & Johnson that the less time we give people to fill up that clinic, the less likely we're going to fill it up too. And so as soon as we got that emergency use authorization to stand back up Johnson & Johnson, I don't think it necessarily gave people a lot of time to you know, read all of that material, to ingest it, and to make that decision to come. But we wanted to offer that option really, really fast as soon as we had that back up because some people are taking it regardless. So we made a decision. Uh, we will take any walk-in now uh, when they come to our clinic. And our scheduling software and that whole kind of back-end allows us to do that. And so we have transitioned into this kind of walk-in model that would allow folks to just say, hey, you know, today's the day I'm going to go in between, you know, this chunk of time. And, and try to get in. Our early concerns with opening up to this kind of walk-in model was that, you know, we have limited vaccine supply. We have an unknown amount of people coming in, so we don't want to run a vaccine or supplies or create a real big traffic pileup. And so, you know, because of that, that initial uh, group of folks wanting to come in and clogging up all of those arterials coming into the pod are no longer there, uh, we, now we can handle safely walk-ins and you know, spend that extra amount of time in the registration that would allow us to kind of do that. You know, we have to take in all that date of birth, address, all of that information has to be imputed. Uh, whereas prior to this, folks could enter that information themselves or prior to, and it would help our, our, our registration process. Okay, so there might be a bit of a wait if there's a, a lot of people that show up and uh, just drop in. That's correct. And so, you know, just allowing a free-for-all uh, it's kind of like, a, I would say it's a garage sale mentality, right? Okay. People, you know, you say the garage sale starts at 7 and people are showing up by 6. And so we didn't want to create that kind of fervor because, number one, you know, these are public sites. And so it does have a traffic issue. There's a security issue. We don't want people waiting in line. And we also want people to say, you know, getting your shot is easy. Come in at your specified time. You get your shot within 15 to 30 minutes. You'll stick around for 15 to 30 minutes after that. And then you're on your way. Okay, so appointments are recommended, but you will take a drop-ins. And then the yeah. hours for that clinic again? In Kona, our operational hours are from 9.30 to 2. In Hilo, they're from 9 to 2. But one thing I, I think that we would like to add is that, you know, changing people's perceptions about vaccine hesitancy or the COVID vaccine in general, you know, it's a conversation. We can't just force people to do it or say, you know, this is your duty. People these days, especially with what we've learned about the pandemic, 
um, in general is that you know this is it has to be a conversation, mm-hmm. and I think that the more that we can have these conversations that you know are, are family based, community based, you know it's consistent messages coming from our governor, from Department of Health, from from national sources, is really going to drive folks to determine where they are in that spectrum of vaccine hesitancy or uh, make that decision to get it. You know, this is really going to be something important that we're going to be doing for quite a while. And we're not we're not out of it. What's going on in India, for instance, is really telling about what that worst case scenario is. And so, you know, people need to kind of uh, interpret those messages. And, you know, we need to stress that messaging. And right. Saying, you know, it, this, this is, is real. really important. And we have a chance to do it. That was Jason De La Cruz, planner with the Department of Health's Office for Public Health Preparedness on Hawaii Island. He was talking about the vaccine clinics that the department is holding this week. For links to info, you can head to our website. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're still thinking about the Civil War. Last week, we featured stories of Hawaii sons who took part in various parts of the conflict and were buried at Oahu Cemetery. Back in 2014, Maui-born author Wayne Moniz penned a novel whose protagonist, Mo'ikeha, is an islander who gets swept into the long, bloody Civil War. Moniz also included some historical facts. Did you know that there were about a dozen Native Hawaiians who served aboard a Confederate ship that devastated merchant shipping in the Pacific? The vessel, originally called Sea King, was an iron frame teak-planked, full-rigged ship with auxiliary steam power. The Sea King became one of the most feared raiders in the Pacific, capturing or sinking 38 Union merchant vessels, many of them whalers sailing out of the Massachusetts port of New Bedford. For today's quiz, we want to know the title of Wayne Moniz's first book. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareetHawaii.com. 
Hey, this is Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, with a special invitation just for you. Join me on Saturday, May 8th at 10 a.m. for an HPR members-only event. I will reveal all the scandalous secrets of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That'll take about a minute, and we'll do a Q&A where I'll answer all of your burning questions. It's a virtual event, and I do hope to see you there on my screen. Don't wait, wait. Get your tickets today at hprtickets.org. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at a major crossroads that we find ourselves with our number one economic driver, tourism. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, you know, we have been hearing lots about what we need to do to change our business model here with tourism, but uh, what's in the way? It's, it's, it's uh, easier said than done. Well, that's right. It's, it, it definitely is easier said than done to completely refashion tourism or come up with a new tourism model. Uh, and uh, the big thing standing in the way right now is uh, many aspects of this uh, pandemic that's hurt the economy and uh, really put the, the uh, efforts to revamp tourism on the back burner. Well, you know, your article mentioned a um, survey that the Hawaii Tourism did, right, um, last year, just about, you know, what the public thought about what we should do. Well, yes. Um, and, you know, the Hawaii Tourism Authority has been doing these uh, resident sentiment surveys uh, for, for years now. And uh, the latest one, uh, the the methodology or the way they accounted for uh, the sentiment and the percentages changed a little bit, uh, but we still saw a, a very large number of people uh, saying they thought that um, the, their island was managed uh, for the tourism industry rather than for them. That was about a, th a third of the people um, in the survey. Uh, f very strongly, completely or very strongly agreed with that idea. So the point is, a lot of people are concerned with the direction tourism has taken. This has been going on for a while. What's striking is that survey was done even during the pandemic. People felt that way with things shut down and the economy really pretty much in tatters. And I know one of the biggest critics of HTA, uh, Senator Glenn Wakai, you know, he's expressed his frustration about you know how but HDA isn't moving fast enough with some of these uh, uh, ideas about how to reshape tourism well that's right and um, Senator Wakai is is pushing a bill that would totally re, re uh, structure Hawaii, the Hawaii Tourism Authority which of course is in charge of marketing uh, Hawaii but uh, the HDA also has been working on this plan to and a series of plans for the various islands to to do just what we're talking about. So they, they have plans uh, published for the neighbor islands. Uh, the one for Oahu is coming soon. The plans do have actual items that can be uh, implemented. So that's a bit of a, of a change from a lot of what we've seen in the past from all sorts of government entities. But 
you know a little bit about the timing of it, and it, it does seem like this is not happening all that fast. Yeah, and the uh, presentations uh, that HDA is holding, actually it's tomorrow and Wednesday for folks here who here, uh, uh, in Honolulu on Oahu that want to weigh in on it. But, yeah, you know, uh, some folks are just saying, well, okay, we needed this yesterday, and it may take a while before this report is finalized. Well, that's right. And so you've got this report. These things take a while. Getting a uh, getting the public to, to buy in, to participate, this sort of process takes a while. We've also got standing in the way the fact that we still have a lot of people unemployed, and the tourism industry provides a lot of jobs. The idea of, of messing with that right now uh, doesn't sit well with a lot of people, and for good reason. We need we need people working, people need jobs, and the tourism industry does bring in a lot of money. You know, and, and we have seen the, uh, uh, the over-tourism at our beach parks, uh, at our state parks, you know, and there's, they, they have instituted, I think, some of the reservation systems in a couple of places, but yeah, some people think that uh, we should have done more last year, I think. Yes, and that's really hard to manage. You know, getting uh, trying to get control of recreational areas when you're talking about beaches and trails, it's just a very difficult thing to to get your arms around. We we spoke to um, uh, Senator Laura Thielen, or the former senator who now runs the parks in uh, Honolulu and who used to run the DLNR, Department of Land and Natural Resources for the state, and she said, look, it's just really hard. Even trails that you think, oh, we could control the trailhead, people can get access from other ways. So these recreational areas are very hard to manage and keep people out of. Diamond Head is an, is an exception. Hanama Bay is an exception. But most places are just very hard to manage. You know, and there was that uh, bill that called for a green fee that they had been discussing, oh, for a year or more. But that didn't right, do, and that's, do well. It, exactly. That uh, it went through the Senate. It stalled in the House. And again, this is 40 bucks. It would be $40 a head for visitors, uh, a way to uh, fund a conservation corps that would help clean up beaches and, and restore trails and do lots of the things that need to be done. Again, that stalled. And it just shows how the political process really favors the status quo. So right now, all of this stuff is very hard to get past. Right. So we might want to hire uh, more, uh, how would you say, higher spending tourists to come. But how do we do that exactly? Dilemma. Well, they're working on it. Yeah. But again, it's very slow. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. And now we're heading back to the Big Island to take a look at another effort to restructure our economy. Senator Laura Ocasio represents Hilo. Uh, she took over the seat of Kaikahele at the start of this year. She's wasted no time in getting down to proposing big changes. Senator Ocasio requested funding from the state for a new initiative that would help small business owners reduce their dependence on single-use plastics. 
The ambitious project didn't make it to the uh, budget this time around. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Senator Ocasio about what the holdup is at the state level and how community members in Hilo are moving forward anyway. Waste to Wealth. It's an initiative that we are pulling together from a broad spectrum of collaborators and folks in within Hilo and also across the islands to really look at our waste stream and implement diversion efforts so that we could divert valuable resources that are currently going into our landfills and utilize them once again that really will you know help mitigate our land our current landfill capacity issues um, i think in the big big picture of it all too is once we really analyze and see um, details of what we are tossing out and considering unwantables then we really have a much bigger idea of um, what we're consuming and how how to better implement either less consumption of those waste stream or implement reuse and reintegration back into the into the cycle uh, before they go to the landfill and hopefully divert it completely and you know in that process we really open up all kinds of opportunities for job creation and artistic and creative endeavors yeah Um, just because we're, we're going to be using this word a lot throughout the course of this conversation can you give an example mm -hmm of waste in this sense? Okay, or Blue Hawaii 600. Some folks in our community have found a particular resource in the hospitals. They wrap the sterile surgical tools in blue material that looks to be uh, like a polyester kind of weave that's quite thick. And normally, you know, when the, the nurse, for example, is unwrapping the tools, that material would get discarded into the trash, and then eventually just go fairly directly to the landfill. So in saving this material and putting it on the side and collecting it, um, some folks in the community have gotten together and started making masks with that material and come to find out um, many of the physicians have done fit tests with it, and it's as, it's as effective as an N95, if not more. And they've come up with this really amazing design that is a, a quite perfect fit to the mouth and the nose, and um, you can even put um, other cloth material on the outside to make it look cute or stylish with with different materials. And then that becomes a resource now that can be resold or gifted, but it was diverted from the landfill directly. So now it has a second use as as a mask. Um, And so it's estimated within our county that perhaps about $11 million worth of valuable, usable material gets discarded and diverted into the landfill. Wow. Um, and, and when, so when I, so for example, you know, in, in now reselling these masks at $5 or, or $3 or $10, um, whatever the cost value is for, for reselling these masks, and those masks, by the way, are reusable. They're not necessarily one-time uses. Again, that, that becomes a valuable resource. It's um, job creation. 
Uh, another example is, you know, linens for hotels. Often they contract out and there's a, there's a company that only picks up the linens, they wash the linens, they fold it, they return it, it gets used again, and the cycle continues. And so to apply that same idea to washing jars, we want to create a demand and a desire for bottle washing, um, utensil washing, for example, for folks that maybe they don't have um, a system or a facility in place to do that, being that they're like a food truck or or a small restaurant business that doesn't really have like full capacity for dishwashing. And they're prior to this relying on single use, oftentimes plastic that goes again, goes once use to the landfill. If thinking about the DOE schools, for example, and their their breakfast and their lunch, and to my knowledge, they always use single use plastic in every single meal. And so even if you start calculating in one small school that may, the smallest schools that have maybe 170 students, um, even to the, to the largest schools that are maybe closer to 800 students, that's a lot of single-use plastic if we really calculate all of the schools. And so really just looking at that, that picture and figuring out ways that we could create jobs by having a washing facility that then goes and delivers and instead of purchasing the plastic from off island and then having it go to our landfill start incorporating many more small businesses that can serve that purpose these are really interesting interesting ideas that you brought up for Mm -hmm. listeners who are not from hilo Uh, who might be tuning in from one of the other islands, or even myself. I'm from the Big Island, but I'm from Kona side originally. How would a waste-to-wealth initiative be important specifically in Hilo? Well, specifically, we have no active landfill in Hilo. And so our discarded items is being shipped daily over the Saddle Road, to Pu'uanahulu landfill. And we do live on an island. And if we think about our footprint on our island and how long this kind of lifestyle will last, and at some point that landfill will reach capacity as well. And so rather than waiting to that point, we have a situation which I believe is more of a crisis when you really look at um, our consumption habits and the volume of consumption. And then now with the Hilo landfill closed, we only have transfer t- stations uh, around the island that are shipping it to Kona. And just it, it just feels like there's a lot of layers of injustice in that. There is responsibility that we as a community on an island can, can take. And honestly, I think the will, uh, social and, and political will of the people in Hilo uh, we, we're ready for it. One of the reasons why this project is so interesting is because you do have all these community partners you've identified who are already doing this work. And so it does seem like Hilo and community members in Hilo are ready for an initiative like this. However, I understand that you submitted a CIP that did not get funding this yes this time round, why do you think, or what do you think was the main barrier to other people signing on to this initiative? Uh, I do fundamentally think that this, the primary barrier barrier to this is the lack of um, funds in 
the state as a whole um, in terms of just really paring down and focusing on the priorities of the, the current Senate. Um, I also do believe that there was not a strong drive within the body of legislators to raise revenue elsewhere. And while we did have some pass through the Senate, um, they didn't pass through the House. And in my view, there could have been a lot more um, initiatives to look into revenue sources elsewhere. But it's a matter of a really tight budget and a deficit that the state is dealing with in terms of cutting back elsewhere. Um, I do think that in this current time of COVID also, it was it was important to prioritize other things for Hilo. Um, we did get $20 million for Hilo Medical Center ICU build out, and that was important priority for the Senate. But the, the CIP for this current project, Waste to Wealth Initiative Permanent Supportive Housing for Hilo, is still in the Senate budget. And being that it's a biennium, uh, we look to it again for next year. Yeah, we've had many, many unprecedented conversations. Unprecedented is our our favorite word in media (laughs) in reference to this past year, but having to make many financial calls and budgeting calls at a legislative level that we weren't intending to in order to address the pandemic, first and foremost. However, the pandemic has also exposed uh, vulnerabilities of our economy, particularly in regards to the tourism industry. and. You had on the table an alternative to an system that many people say didn't work and that we shouldn't return to. Was there a moment of frustration when you offered that alternative and <laughs> people were unable to sign on at this time? Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I was frustrated. I actually think all of this is still headed in that direction. Like Kilo is headed in the direction Regardless of funding, of course, we need funding for certain projects. Yeah, I I wouldn't say personally I was frustrated because I really still truly believe there was a lot of support from so many different departments um, and also organizations that are involved. And we are still making huge efforts within our office and also with the federal delegation to pull in other sources of funding Mm. for this project. So... It, just because the state was unable um, to prioritize it at this time uh, doesn't mean that the initiative is is left on the side. Um, there there are definitely opportunities that we're looking into to bring in to bring in resources for this. You articulated it quite well in terms of our vulnerabilities that COVID has shown us. It's just a matter of really looking at that and taking action. I think we've known it for a long time, but um, the action it becomes more and more important to take action on that knowledge. That was Senator Laura Ocasio on her Waste to Wealth Initiative in Hilo. We'll keep an eye out for the program in the next budget round, and we will link to Hawaii 600 Blue Masks on our website. Support for HPR comes from Christina Hom, Institutional Consultant, 
Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC, member SIPC, assisting organizations of all sizes in Honolulu, 525-6977. When you tune into HPR, you often hear voices from right here in the islands. I'm Gene Schiller, and on today's Morning Cafe... Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's All Things Considered, and I'm Dave Lawrence. I'm Derek Malama. And welcome to Kanikapila Sunday. In fact, one-third of our shows are hosted right here by the HPR team. They bring you news and music from here and around the world and put it in context for local listeners like you. To learn more, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Have you observed strings of bright lighting up in the night sky recently? Well, stargazers and researchers are fighting to preserve the natural airspace overhead. HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips talk about the ongoing Starlink controversy. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, troubled planet. And as usual, we are turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips and are fortunate to have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars and Venus, which can both be seen in the west after sunset. Mars will be setting at around 10.30 p.m. and Venus shortly after the sun. The moon this week is waning and will be approaching the new moon phase by week's end, so conditions will be great for stargazing. And I understand you've got a topic this week that relates to impacts on stargazing and the uh, Starlink controversy as it is. Yes, it's the ongoing saga of Elon Musk's Starlink project. Starlink is an ambitious project to bring global high-speed internet to Earth-based customers using a mega constellation of thousands of satellites. If you spend time looking at the night sky, you have no doubt seen strings of bright lights passing overhead on some evenings. The International Astronomical Union is now calling on the United Nations to protect our pristine night sky from these pesky celestial light shows. And these are a problem for some professional astronomers too, correct? Indeed. The Starlink satellites have made numerous unwelcome appearances in astronomical data obtained by ground-based telescopes and have made this data more or less worthless on certain nights. The fear amongst astronomers is that as the number of these satellites increases, they will become a threat to ground-based astronomy. And so what's the International Astronomical Union going to propose to the United Nations? Well, a request will be submitted to give the night sky protected status for the sake of future advancements in astronomy and also to preserve one of our most precious natural resources for future generations. The Starlink thing isn't, isn't the only one of these sort of situations, potentially, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's going to become a very big deal because now there are multiple companies in various countries around the world that have these mega constellations of satellites planned to compete with SpaceX. If we don't act now to preserve the night sky, stargazing as we know it will change forever. The final frontier is in danger of becoming a satellite freeway. It's Christopher Phillips and another fascinating Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can catch Stargazer, by the way, at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com.
Earlier in the show, we told you about a Maui-born author, Wayne Moniz, who wrote about Native Hawaiians fighting in the American Civil War. Now, despite the Hawaiian Kingdom's official neutrality, people in the islands were inevitably drawn into the conflict, and about 100 of them took an active part serving in both the Union and the Confederate armies. According to Moniz, his first novel was meant to capture the experience of Native Hawaiians who were caught up in the bloody war. Not everyone survived the ordeal. Some would go on to receive their red badge of courage, while others would never return to their beloved homeland of Hawaii. The adventure of the protagonist, Mo Ikeha Keki Omaui, is told in Pukoko, a Hawaiian in the American Civil War. It was a novel published in 2014. And congratulations to Lopaka, you got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, if you've been influenced by a teacher at some point in your life, well, this is the week to show your gratitude. Teacher Appreciation Week kicks off today, and what better way to recognize the important role that teachers play in our lives than to talk to one? Christina Torres teaches eighth grade English at Punahou School, and she's one of a handful of local teachers participating in National Geographic Society's Boat and Forum for Educators. She spoke with the Conversations Russell Subiono about teaching in current times, what post-pandemic education might look like, and how everyone can show their appreciation for teachers. A year into the pandemic, what are some of the challenges teachers are still working through that the public may not know about? You know, I, I first want to recognize that I'm, I'm definitely coming from a position of privilege in that I teach at an, at a, you know, at an independent school that is, you know, has, a, has a lot of financial resources. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've certainly struggled and my colleagues and I have certainly struggled. And I also recognize that folks in public schools, particularly in rural and urban areas, are even seeing much more of that struggle because I don't think personally that we educate, that we, I'm sorry, that we fund public education in the way that we should. I do think one big thing that we're seeing as a result of the pandemic is just how much teachers have historically been asked to play every role in a student's life for a very long time. Teachers are often also counselors, therapists, social workers. You know, they fulfill all of these needs in a student's life. And and I think that's something that we've been bearing the brunt of for a really long time. And then trying to do that in in a pandemic while also trying to take care of ourselves feels like a near impossible task sometimes. Um, because we are also exhausted and, and scared for our, our, our health and our wellness and our families, just like everyone else is. So I think recognizing the teacher is, as human, you know, also a lot of teachers were kind of thrown into this completely new way of education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty tech savvy. I grew up with a computer. I, you know, my, my degree is actually in digital education and I still struggled with all, with trying to move everything online. It's really hard. And, so I think also that that understanding of like we are human and figuring this out right along with students um, is really really valuable for everyone to remember because we were we I, a lot of teachers that were five ten fifteen years in were saying this is harder than my first year of teaching just because there's so many new things and trying to manage all the 
you know, the, the emotional needs that our students very understandably had, many of us without the resources to do so was, was really difficult. The National Geographic Society reached out to us and kind of told us of some of the efforts that they were doing to help teachers. And they also shared with us a little bit about some work they had done with you or some, some feedback they had gotten from you. And so what I understand, the National Geographic Society has this global community of educators and has given them an open forum to express themselves and reflect on the last year. During Teacher Appreciation Week, the society is calling on teachers to share their both and moments, moments of both struggle and strength, of both hope and healing. Can you share with our listeners more about this forum and how it's helped you? The Both And Forum is an opportunity for teachers to share and really kind of name sort of the, the struggle that I just talked about with the tension maybe that I just talked about within mm-hmm. education, right? Our profession is beautiful and so awe-inspiring and so, so life-giving in so many ways. And at the same time, it is very, very difficult. And it's a very difficult profession that I, I do sometimes feel like is undervalued in our society yeah. or, or misrepresented. Yeah. You know, there are people that that do look at teachers sometimes as, you know, glorified babysitters. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're like, well, you, you know, they, they assume that we just kind of do whatever with kids all day instead of realizing that there's a lot of really advanced thought that goes into our practice. So the both and forms the opportunity for teachers to share their hopes, their struggles, their ideas for next year. Um, and I found it when I did it a really great reflection tool for this year, a really great kind of place for me to give myself pause and think about, okay, as the school year is wrapping up, which is a crazy time for a lot of educators, mm-hmm. what do I want to remember about this time? What do I want to maybe let go in the past? And what do I want to bring with me in the future? Um, and so I found that really, really important to be considering. After we emerge from the pandemic and things go back to some semblance of normal on campuses, what do you think the education system will look like? What are some of the processes we might keep from the pandemic era? And what are some new challenges you think that we'll have to address? What a great question. And something that I've been wrestling, I'm pausing because I've been wrestling with this question, Mm -hmm. you know, all this past year too, like what does this mean for our future? I think some things that we're going to see have to change or that we're going to see added on rather is I, I, I think we're going to see an uptick in remote or digital opportunities for education. You know, as difficult as this time was for many, many people, and I think many, many people want to get off their Zoom screens um, or their WebEx or their Google Meet screens, I think we also saw some people realize and some students realize, you know, that I, oh, I I learn really well this way. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like, you know, this actually works really well for me. And there are already schools, even on island, right, like Hawaii, uh, the Hawaii Tech Academy actually already had kind of a hybrid model like this where the kids would learn sometimes at home and sometimes in the classroom. And I do think we're going to see an increase and a desire for those kinds of programs because some students really like having that flexibility. And I think that flexibility is important if we can provide equitable access to it because for some students that might be a really powerful way to get them reconnected to their education. So that I think could be really interesting to see. I also really hope that we take on and we continue, you know, sort of this idea of flexibility overall. I've seen a lot of teachers, myself included, kind of rethink assessments or try and provide other options, opportunities, or methods for assessing students outside of maybe more traditional testing. 
And I think that could be a really powerful thing for us to move forward because we're realizing that, you know, a multiple choice test has, has never been a great measure of a student a student's whole education overall. And right. so how can right. we start moving away from that, you know? And even schools getting rid of the SATs and things like that, I think that's a really interesting conversation that I hope moves forward. But I think we're going to have to change and do the, the, you know, the biggest thing for me in this whole thing has been equitable access to resources, particularly the Internet. You know, I know that there were some programs here on island like Hawaii Kids Can that worked hard to kind of get digital hotspots up for students. And that's something that really needs to be normalized, continued, or even pushed farther into providing high, you know, high quality Internet services for everyone. I think it is part of the greater public good if everyone can connect and have access to information. And so I think that is just one of many kind of inequities that the pandemic really brought to light. And so we're going to have to address some of those inequities if we want to really move forward. The pandemic, as hard and as terrible as it has been on, on a lot of people in a lot of ways, it seems like it created an opportunity for education to kind of rethink some things. And I hope that there's some some good things that come out of it and, and some adjustments made to adapting to different learning styles for, for different students. I just have one last question. How can parents and the public best show their appreciation for teachers this week? I think some things that we can do to help teachers or show teachers that we appreciate them is, is one is, you know, reach out to your teacher. I think and, and this is something that I think we as educators should also try and do more, and any, many educators do, and I've been trying to do more, is reach out with, the, with a positive note or really positive affirmation. You know, yesterday I had a student come by. Um, she's a sophomore now, so I had her, gosh, three years ago, two or three years ago, and, and she came by to just say hi and just say, like, you know, I just wanted to say, like, I missed your class and I'm doing well. And it was such a great moment. And it's, I, I don't always think that students and parents realize how much that means to us as teachers. So just that little reach out to be like, hey, I noticed you did this and we really think it's great. Thank you for your work is really powerful for a lot of us. And then, you know, that's, that's one side. And then on the other side of that is, is as much as I, I think all teachers appreciate gifts and gift cards and, you know, snacks. I'm, yeah, I love those things. I always love a nice <laughs> snack. Um, I think it's also, you know, realizing what our larger role in society is and listening to our voices and listening to our stories, you know. So often I think teachers kind of end up being put in this box of the classroom and, well, you don't understand, you're just working with kids all day. And, you know, we are professionals. We Many of us have worked very, very hard to get our degrees, our advanced degrees, our certifications. So I think you know, on a larger scale outside of the very wonderful presents and things that we get from students, you know, starting to see our profession as one of an actual, you know, profession of, of that professionalism that, that we, we try and embody with our students. Teaching is a lot of fun and we get to be silly and, and have a lot, of, a lot of really great, wonderful times with our kids, but it is, it is tough work. And I think the public and parents help in shifting that perception would, would be really powerful for a lot of us. Going back to snacks, what, yeah. <laughs> what's your favorite <laughs> snack? <laughs> Student-parent community out here in Hawaii makes the best Tex-Mix. Oh, my God. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up here, and so I didn't really have Tex-Mix in the same way, you know, as on the mainland. Mm-hmm. And then I came out here, and I was like, there's honeycomb and putakaki, and what is this magic? 
so good. <laughs> and, you know, you don't really get that now because yeah. of the pandemic because people aren't doing homemade snacks as much, which I fully understand. But I have missed the Chex Mix. I missed it. Local Chex Mix. I love it. That was our Russell Subiano talking with Christina Torres, a teacher at Punahou School. Do you have a teacher you want to give a shout-out to? Leave a voicemail on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, and we will share your mahalo message on the air. That's it for today. Tomorrow we talk with City Prosecutor Steve Alm about restoring trust and the return to weed and seed programs. If you missed any part of our show or want to share it with someone or want to catch up on past shows, you can listen to the conversation as a podcast. Enjoy the entire show or listen to specific interviews. We'll make it easy and convenient to stay up to date. Find our podcast on the conversations page at hawaiipublicradio.org or use the on-demand option to choose the conversation on the HPR mobile app. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.